while to get connected. No, that's all right. You're here now, no problem. Thank you for joining. So we will jump right in. Um, thanks for tuning in for our weekly Fashion Bites chat. Um, I'm Hillary, for those of you who don't know, the founder of the Fashion Bites platform. It's created to support and nurture creative entrepreneurs. It fills the gap between education and what happens in real life, because there's definitely a gap about what happens in real life. Um, this is our way to still connect, collaborate, and share. And we are very pleased that Chris has um, decided to spend half an hour with us today. Um, Chris, please introduce yourself. So my name's Chris Spira. I've been involved in the fashion industry for over 20 years now in various different guises as an investor, as a CEO, as a consultant. Um, and so I've seen it from all sorts of different perspectives, all sorts of different angles. Um, and I'm delighted and privileged to be invited to come and join you today. Okay, thank you very much. Right, so let's dive in. As a business strategist, what are some of the critical things that businesses should be looking at during a crisis and all thrown into survival mode? What would you, what would you advise? Well, I think that emergencies like this have a sort of filtering process. Um, a sort of Darwinian effect, if you like, of really testing how robust and solid businesses are. Um, and in a way, they sharpen your focus on the things that really, really matter. The things, the most important things are the things that you will not survive without at a time of crisis like this. Um, and so I would, I would sort of amongst those, people focus a lot on cash, um, to sort of be rather crude, but at the end of the day, if you haven't got a pot of cash when your sales dry up and there's a uh, anomalous change in consumer behavior, um, you're gonna have great difficulty. Um, there are ways, of course, to try and get cash short term, but they are very challenging, particularly when the whole industry is suffering at the same time. So having an adequate amount of cash to keep for a rainy day, I would say is extremely important. Um, and these things are often better understood in retrospect and, and uh, than, than, um, you know, than when you're actually in it. Um, but beyond cash, in the branded consumer goods world, which is really fashion, where fashion sits at the, at the heart of it, um, my view is that the focus and clarity of your brand message is absolutely paramount. And the integrity of that message will also be tested and very important at this time when people will be looking for reassurance, they'll be looking for security, they'll be looking for brands that have made promises and that they trust. Um, and so focusing on how you are positioned, what you stand for, and to what extent you are 100% loyal to those values, um, I think is more important than ever at a time when people are looking for solidity and robustness and things that they can they can rely on. So I would say the two headlines would be cash and brand focus. But of course, there are dozens of other things that are absolutely critical, um, including your relationships, overall your relationships with your customers, um, having a solid and flexible supply chain. Um, right. Supply chains have come under a massive amount of strain. Those that are 
very finely, very sensitive to small oscillations in demand will find things extremely challenging when there are changes as there are now. Um, and so I think that's an area of focus. And then of course, I mean, I'm really just going through the big pieces of a fashion business. And of course, your distribution channels um, similarly need to be robust um, and have an element of uh, of resilience to 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 change and some of your partners um, if you are in third-party retailers will be in a strong position and will be able to work with you through a crisis like this and others who are less flexible will have more difficulty right okay um, do you think there are any growth opportunities at the moment yes I mean you know there are all sorts of very um, sort of pithy uh, sort of uh, anecdotes, expressions, sayings that come out of these types of situations like never waste a good crisis. And in these right. situations, of course, there are always lots and lots of opportunities. Those who will be able to take those opportunities are those who will have some of the things that we've just discussed in place, um, but also have the, the courage and the insight to act, to identify and to act on, on, on the, the opportunities. I mean, look, there are some broad um, areas where demand is has has been sustained if not even increased um, in the fashion world it's not so easy to think of fashion itself as a product category as being one where demand is going to increase i mean there are elements particularly in the beauty industry and at the lower price points which are traditionally counter cyclical that they're traditionally popular when times are hard um, so entry products and you know cheap feel-good products the famous one is lipstick um, and lots of other makeup products similarly uh, are opportunities but they need to fit in a kind of sensible and credible way into your overall product offering it's no good being a hat manufacturer and suddenly launching a lipstick line uh, just because you think there might be an opportunity in the crisis um, so I think there are product categories that um, present opportunities. I mean, the most, most obvious opportunity is around the sales channel. Physical sales channels are in extreme difficulty. People are tending to move online. Depending on your mix of channels, e-commerce, if you're multi-channel, e-commerce versus wholesale or licensing or whatever other sales channels you might be in, um, there will be an opportunity perhaps to shift some of those sales online that's clearly the channel which is benefiting the most um mm -hmm. you know it's it's uh it's pretty tough to if you're a multi-channel business with a sort of typical percentage of sales going through digital channels which tends to be below 20 percent, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent it's difficult for your e-commerce side of your business to more than compensate for the decline in the rest of your business, which tends to be around 80% in very right. broad sort of averages. But um, there is an opportunity there if you have the, the resources um, and the infrastructure in place to try and shift your focus online, there, there, there are opportunities um, there. So, you know, amongst product categories and amongst sales channels, there are opportunities. Um, okay. But um, it's, it's very challenging, there's no doubt about it. Okay. Are investors still investing? Well, investors 
are looking for all the things that we've just touched on and they will mm -hmm. look at they will have a segment view um overall retail and consumer goods um and they will have a more particular view on fashion if you're talking about fashion specifically um you know it's not the obvious candidate if i'm being very frank for investment in an environment such as what we are in now that said mm -hmm. the businesses with the most comfortable cash positions and the most clearly defined and articulated brands are weathering the storm better than others. And so if you are an investor looking at the relative positions of different brands within a sector, um, there are potentially some, some opportunities. You will focus as an investor on things such as sales channels. Investors are certainly in my experience, more focused in this environment on digital businesses, e-commerce driven businesses, um, you know, to, to state the obvious. Um, they are trying to understand, I mean, the challenge of an investor is to try and understand how consumer needs are changing and how they will be in the future. Um, and no one can, can do that um, perfectly, but certainly an attempt to anticipate the changing, changing consumer behaviors in the light of a situation like this um, mm -hmm. is, is extremely important. And that's what investors are trying to do. So I think that in fashion, I haven't seen a huge amount of investment um, okay. right now during, during the last, you know, the last few months of the crisis. Um, but the businesses that investors will look at are, um, are those that have a sort of an outlook that in some ways goes beyond the immediate situation. I mean, the other big theme is, I mean, health and safety now is obviously a bigger theme than it's, than it's ever been, um, which links to, to the environment uh, and businesses that are really thinking about they, their environmental impact um, because that is a major consumer trend and consumers are more and more interested in those things. If anything, it will be exacerbated by this virus, an idea, you know, the sense of being environmentally friendly, of respecting health and safety regulations going beyond um, what's been seen previously. I'm talking to some companies who are trying to develop sort of bacteria detecting products, um, right. which is you know, an example of a sort of very interesting, innovative area, which is probably a long way from being mainstream. But, you know, today more than ever, people will actually look at those types of ideas seriously. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so what I'm gathering for an investor, for you to gain confidence, an investor's confidence, you have to have a strong um, brand message again. And there isn't much, by the way, of what's going on in fashion at the moment, understandably. Um, in an ideal-ish world, what is the good time to, for a business to seek investment? Well, and it, it could be any business. We're talking about fashion, but in the broader sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, it's, it's not a question that has, a, that has a, a specific answer. It's a question which has an answer that depends very much on the individual company, the owners, uh, and, and um, what they want to do with their business. Um, but in terms of sort of broad strokes, um, 
in fashion in particular, it's very difficult to raise money very, when you're very, very small. So um, the further you can go, the better. So if you think if you put an investor's hat on, the further you can go without, without funding, the better. If you put an investor's hat on, every element of the journey that you haven't yet got in place represents a risk. Investors, all they think about is risk. How can I put some money into something at the lowest possible risk and get the highest possible return? So every element of your thinking about when and how to approach investors is to do with risk. So the more you can achieve without raising money or going to investors, generally, the less risk there is. So for example, you know, if you're saying what I want to do is to enter the Chinese market, but I haven't done it yet. That represents a huge risk and implementation risk, etc. If you're already in the Chinese market, even if you've just dipped your toe in and you say, I want to build on the experiences I had in the Chinese market, the risk is decreased and potentially um, the valuation of your business is, is increased. So my advice is always go as far as you possibly can without right. raising money. Um, partly because the um, more you've done the higher the valuation is likely to be and the less of your business you are likely to give away. Um, and uh, because, because the, the, the risks are lower. Um, I think that sometimes it takes a bit of time on your journey to work out exactly what you want the investment for. So mm -hmm. the more you can define the uses of the funds, uh, the more confidence you will inspire in an investor who can understand exactly what you're going to do with with their money and that can come very early with the most visionary founders and sometimes it takes a little bit of time um, so the question of readiness for investment is is very hard the, the the sort of seed capital in fashion businesses is probably some of the most difficult money to raise of all um, which is why a lot of people who uh, you know, a lot of people are forced to fund their businesses through their family and friends and through networks, which, of course, reduces the pool of people who are able to build their businesses. Because if you haven't got family and friends who can fund you, who are prepared to take that risk, it's extremely difficult. Of course, there are grants you can get and there are places you can go to get small amounts of money. It's extremely competitive and, and very difficult. So in summary, yeah. go far as you can without raising investment and try every time you say anything to any investor um, try and reduce their perception of the risk and increase their perception of the opportunity as banal as it might sound a lot of people don't think about it in that way right right because i i was wondering also if to to look at the risk um, side of things, would it be better to have multiple investors? So it's, it's not all in one, on one um, investor's um, shoulders. Well, again, that, the answer to that question depends very, very much on the founder and what, and what they want, what type of investor they want. So some founders mm -hmm. want investors who will be very hands-on, who can help them with specific parts of their business. And those are often more strategic than financial or they are strategic as well as financial um, and in those cases really your priority is to find the right partner who can help you with the specific problem that you want to figure out in which case you know probably it's about finding one right partner and it doesn't matter how many you have um, 
if they're the wrong ones, then, um, then that's not helpful. So multiple investors also come with a lot of complications. They require lots of communication. They're not always entirely aligned with you or one another. So they might right. want to go in different directions at different points in the evolution of the company. So I would always urge companies to be as clear as possible as to what they want from their investors and to focus probably on getting as few investors as possible who deliver their objectives. It might be that you just want money. You don't want any interference. But again, just you know, a large number of investors requires more communication and management and investor relations, as they call it, um, when really you should be focusing on trying to build your business. Right, right. Um, before you mentioned, um, you touched on valuation, which um, is a question I had, is how do you figure out the company's valuation um, properly? Because I can, I can think of examples, of course, of like um, Dragon's Den, where one of the things that they talk about increasingly, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's inflated and it's a turnoff. So how, how do you do that right? Well, you know, it's a delicate thing and it requires, it requires balance. I mean, at, at early, early stages, there aren't many sort of scientific ways to value businesses. So the bigger and more complex the business becomes, the more sort of scientific methods there are to help you make the valuation. I mean, valuation is not scientific at any scale, but at least you can start doing sort of discounted cash flow models and various financial models to help you, uh, to help you come to a sensible valuation with very early stage businesses. My view is this. If you have a very clear vision of what you want to do with your business, which includes how big you want it to be and how quickly you want it to be that big. You can work out how much money you need to do that. Right. Once you know how much money you need to do that, you then need to try and find investors who will allow you to deliver that plan. And in order to allow you to deliver that plan, they need to give you certain elements of control, if not total control. So where you end up is trying to strike a balance between saying, look, I understand you need my money in order to do your plan, but the investor mm -hmm. needs to understand that without the entrepreneur, the founder being highly motivated, because they're gonna to have to work every minute of every day in order to, to realize their plans, that they've yes. got to let them have control of at least certain aspects of the company that the founder is particularly suited to. You may find that your investor helps you with the financial side, but essentially running the business day to day, if an investor at an early stage doesn't trust the company they're founding in to run it well, then they shouldn't invest. And this has all the implications on valuation because in the end, you've got to put the money in that they need while allowing them to have the independence to do it. And you're having a negotiation around those themes fundamentally. And my belief is if you take too much of the company, in other words, you value the business too low, you won't have a motivated founder and you need the founder to be highly incentivized in order for them to put in the effort that's required. Yes, because you do need that balance. It's it, how much of my company and my passion in life do I give away for that investment as Absolutely. a fine balance? Absolutely. And it depends on, on you know, all these questions about what type of company and business the founder wants to have. If they want to build something very quickly, as big as possible, and then sell it in three years' time, 
they'll think about it one way. If they want to build Giorgio Armani and still be the controlling CEO in 50 years time, they'll think about it a different way. Um, and that impacts the types of investors, how you think about valuation, what kind of support you need, et cetera. Um, so it's, a, it's, you know, there are lots of moving pieces. Okay. We've had a question come in. How do you stop an investor from trying to buy you out or take over once they've realized that the business is really good and profitable? Well, this, a lot of this stuff gets discussed and agreed in advance. So when you're having a conversation with an investor, you decide and negotiate various triggers and controls that they might have in certain situations. Usually, usually investors will expect to get more control if the situation goes bad as a sort of protection against the situation going bad in the probably incorrect belief that they could do better than the founders if things go bad, so they take the reins. But if a situation is going well, then what would normally happen is if you've done the deal correctly and you negotiated everything sensibly is that everyone's a winner. You get yourself into a position where everyone's benefiting, the company is doing really well and is being profitable. The investor has an opportunity, depending how you set up the investment, to get a return on that investment. Um, but the answer, the short answer to the question is if you set up the deal correctly and you get the right kind of advice to make sure that your deal is set up in the right way, then there will be protections for you in the same way that investors will want protections. Um, and normally when, it's, when it goes well, normally shareholders don't get increased power. They normally get increased power if things go badly. Um, but of course, any deal can be agreed and any situation can result from that deal. So the, I think the short answer is get some really good advice and make sure that the deal is structured in a, in a way where you envisage all the different types of scenarios from Armageddon to Nirvana. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've heard a couple of different um, schemes tossed around. If you could um, dive into that for us, please. Um, EIS and SEIS. Um, um, investment schemes, and they're usually quite beneficial tax-wise to an investor. Yes. Yeah, so these, these are schemes that the government has introduced in order to de-risk investments for investors. So essentially, it means that you can put in a certain amount of money and have a protection against losing it all. So it's, and it's extremely attractive. So just without being sort of too technical, I mean, I can discuss in more detail if anybody wants to sort of get in touch later. But broadly speaking, the SEIS scheme is the most favorable. And it is a scheme which is applicable to the earliest stage businesses. And there are various criteria that you have to satisfy to prove that you're a very early stage business. And what it means is investing can put some money in and they will get a tax refund from the government on 50% of that investment if you think about it, it's an extraordinary incentive. So I put in 100 and the government will make me, will discount my next tax bill by 50. So effectively, I'm only investing 50 and getting the benefit of 100. Plus, if there is a successful exit, normally you pay capital gains tax on your profits. In these investments, you don't pay any capital gains tax on any benefit. Wow. So, yeah, so they're very, very interesting. Now, the reason they're so interesting is because these investments are so high risk. Mm. And so 
to invest in a business that qualifies for SEIS, you're investing in a business that will have a very small number of people and be very, very early stage in its journey and so on. So the risks are very high. Um, however, you immediately get your 50%. So whatever happens to the company, you get the 50% back. And then if in 10 years time, it's a huge success, then you don't pay any tax on the upside. And the only difference between an SIS, which is a seed enterprise investment scheme, and the EIS, which is an enterprise investment scheme, is the companies are a little bit more mature to qualify for the EIS. So they no longer qualify for the SEIS, they qualify for the EIS, and there the investors get 30% of their money back instead of 50% is the main difference. Okay, okay. I didn't realize it was 50% back. Yeah, it's very, very, very attractive. And you know, anybody going out to raise investment should look on the very simple sort of government websites and so on as to what criteria they need to satisfy. They then need to ask the government to get approval before they go and raise money. And once they've got approval that they qualify for SEIS, you can go and tell all your investments, you'll get 50% back the day you invest, as long as you are a UK taxpayer. And there are various other sort of, um, uh, sort of conditions, but it's an extremely attractive package for both investors and the company. From the company's perspective, it doesn't reduce the, um, they get the full benefit of the cash. There are no real downsides for them. But for the investor, the investor also has to qualify, by the way. So both the company and the okay. investor have to qualify. And basically for the investor, they've got to be UK resident and taxpaying. Right. Okay, thank you. Um, one final question, which I've um, had sent in. Um, how do you raise capital if you don't have funds to invest yourself? Well, you can raise capital just on the basis of an idea. Of course, it's more difficult, um, mm -hmm. but you can go to people with just a document that says, look, here is a plan I've made. I've researched it. Um, I'm credible in my ability to implement it. I've done all the modeling, the opportunity I've researched as well. Here's all the evidence. And you've just, present a case uh, and investors can invest on the basis of the idea and your ability to convince them that it's worth investing. There's no requirement to have done anything. The only requirement is you've got to come up with an idea that is compelling enough for an investor to invest. And that is about risk and reward, low enough risk, high enough reward. Um, and of course, you, the, the risks are around your credibility and the work you've done and how much you can convince an investor that you can deliver on the plan. And so you don't need to, you need to have, you know, in theory, um, you could just write a document, um, you know, print out a few pages or not even do that. You could just, uh, you know, just send a PDF. You don't even have to have the money to print out a document. And <laughs> You know, you can have a, a conversation with mm -hmm. investors. Of course, you know, it has its challenges. But um, in theory, that's absolutely possible if the idea is good enough. Okay. Thank you very much. And that went very quickly. Um, thank you so, so much for spending your time with us today. Um, thanks, guys, for tuning in. Please join us again next week. We will have Stephanie Horton. She is CEO of Hemp Taylor and former CMO of Farfetch. Until then, bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.